we continue worshiping together today, you may turn in your favorite Bible app or the Pew Bible and receive this reading from the book of Exodus, beginning in chapter 14, verse 19. The angel of God who was going before the Israelite army moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel, and so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us free from the Israelites for the Lord is fighting for them and against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians upon their chariots and upon their chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depths. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Receive what the Spirit is saying. We invite you now together with all of us who are gathered in this place to pray together. Loving and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you. For you, O oh God, are our rock and Redeemer. Amen. When you get together at a family gathering and are telling old stories about things that have happened, or perhaps when you're just in any gathering telling a story and someone who was there for whatever story you're telling is also with you, perhaps a partner or a friend, in either of those scenarios, it's not uncommon to get interrupted as you're telling the story with someone breaking in and saying, that's not what happened. And then what often occurs is the sharing of different perspectives or different memories about what really happened or why it happened or who was responsible for what happened. 
Today's ancestral family story from the book of Exodus reflects this phenomenon. Just as we have four accounts of the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each with their own audience and context and purpose for writing and theological bent, so too there is more than one account of the miracle at the Red Sea. It may not be obvious at the beginning of the story, but if you read the whole account that begins somewhere in chapter 13 through chapter 15 in Exodus, you will discover that there are lots of things that just don't add up. But I want to take just a minute, an interesting little aside. You know, we call this story the story of the Red Sea, Moses and the Israelites at the Red Sea, the Red Sea, the Red Sea. And somebody at our earlier service, one of our children, said, why is it called the Red Sea? Well, I I have an answer for you. Um, In the original text, the Hebrew word that is translated as red is actually a word, a Hebrew word, suf, which means reed, R-E-E-D. Evidently, at some point in the transcription from the original language, probably to the King James Version, there was a little mistake. And the Red Sea is what has gotten passed down through all the ages. So now you know that the sea we're talking about is, in fact, something called, no one knows exactly where it is, the Sea of Reeds, the Reed Sea. So there you have it, a little fun fact for your Sunday. But back to our story. So here's the thing. The issue with our story is that there are different accounts of this story that have been very carefully interwoven, making it impossible to get exactly the facts of the story to line up. Things like these questions, when you really start looking carefully. Did God, working through Moses, divide the sea to allow Israel to cross and then bring the waters down on the Egyptians who were in pursuit? Or did the Israelites not actually cross the sea, but instead remained still guarded by the pillar of cloud that stood between them and the Egyptians, and then God directly moves a strong east wind to blow the waters back and cause the Egyptian chariots in a panic to move into the waters and get clogged in the mud, and they couldn't get themselves out until the waters returned to their normal levels. Those are two different versions of what might have happened. And if you read uh, in chapter 15, the ancient song that captures this story, it doesn't mention anything about the Israelites crossing the sea. Did the event happen during the night or in daylight? Was the purpose of the event to reveal to the Egyptians that the Lord is better than all of Egypt's gods? Or was it to get the Israelites to believe in the Lord and in God's servant, Moses. A determined editor pulled together different strands of the tradition, different perspectives on what was across the board known to be a key moment in Israel's history and has left us with the account that we have in Exodus 13, 14, and 15. And just as with our reading of the gospel accounts, contradictory details in the stories don't have to distract us from the narrative thread. In the case of our text, 
today, the story, I'll give you a little bit of backstory. The story is that God has liberated the Israelites from brutal slavery in Egypt. And though they leave prepared for battle, we're told in the text, God guides them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, away from potential violent conflict with the Philistines, which would have been the route closest to escape, the easiest route, and rather God guides them into the southern wilderness where they will have to navigate the Reed Sea surrounding the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. Pharaoh has second thoughts, wakes up after they've left, has second thoughts about letting God's people go, and rallies all his chariots and officers and sets out in hot pursuit. When the Israelites see that they are in trouble, they begin what will become a long tradition of complaining to Moses about the situation they're in. But even still, the angel of God, who, by the way, we have not heard of until this moment in the story, where this angel comes from, who's evidently been there, we don't know. At this point, the angel of God, as well as the pillar of cloud, moves between the two armies, creating a shield. And there's no direct conflict, violent conflict, between them, between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And then something happens at the sea. The waters move somehow to make a way for God's people to get to safety. It might have happened any number of ways. But the thing that all accounts agree upon is that the great and terrible Egyptian army gets wiped out. Whether out of panic and getting stuck in the mud, or through their violent zeal in pursuit of the freed slaves, all of them are ultimately drowned. The Israelites are saved. The story as it has come down to us cannot be cleaned up to make God a passive agent in the drowning deaths that occur. It is clear that at least one of the strands of tradition in the text really believed that God acted in ways that brought death upon Pharaoh and to the Egyptian army. And not just that, but also that violence was used by God to prove that Yahweh is the greatest Lord and the only Lord. It's an our God is better than your God kind of moment in our family history. And in those moments that do occur relatively often in our scriptures, it's helpful to remember that as followers of Jesus, we always read our family history through the lens of Christ. And that simply means that we have to grapple with the difficult question of why our ancestors believed God was responsible for injustice and violence. Was this simply a reflection of the cultural influences of the time? Is the God revealed in Jesus a God who would use violence or natural disasters to punish and to kill God's own children, humans made in God's own image? Rabbi Steve Weissman, who's been teaching us over the course of this sermon series, said on this past week's session 
that the rabbis have been wrestling with the story and with this question it raises about God's nature since the earliest centuries of the common era. What kind of God is Yahweh? And what kind of people are we who follow the Lord? In those family storytelling moments, when everyone is piping up with their version of the story, it can feel like a tiny miracle when everybody begins to agree on something. <laughs> like for us here at Foundry, it might be, oh, the best part of the baptism that day was when Kate laid her hand on her twin sister's head during the laying on of hands at her baptism. Or, oh, that, remember that time, you remember this, it was the, one of the best, most powerful moments in worship when John Harden sang my tribute only weeks before he left this world. Those sorts of things are little miracles in themselves. It's great when you can all agree. And there are some things that have been widely agreed upon about our story today. First, it's widely agreed that God receives the cries of the oppressed and leads them out of slavery. That God isn't put off by the complaining, grumbling family, but remains steadfast, guarding and guiding them. And that God is the source of liberation. It is God who acts, mediated or unmediated, to save. And second, it's broadly agreed that the event at the Reed Sea is a miracle something extraordinary, something unthinkable, something unimaginable happened. And you can think about that in terms of a ragtag army of formerly enslaved people coming through unscathed when confronted with the full power of the Egyptian empire's war machine. That's extraordinary. Or you could think about the miracle as whatever happened with the water. <laughs> it's parting and making a wall on either side so that the Israelites walked through on dry ground, or whether it was a great east wind that blew the waters back at just the right time. Unimaginable. But as I've been working with this story, I've begun to think about it as a family miracle that has yet to be fully realized. An unfinished miracle, if you will. Because in my favorite definition, a miracle is not when God does something that we want God to do, like perhaps taking out our enemies or leading us to safety or doing a fancy magic trick at the sea. But rather, a miracle is when, with the help and grace of God, we do what God wants us to do. When our actions and our lives are changed to be aligned with the ways of God's kingdom. It seems to me that God's part in the miracle is done. God guided the people away from direct violent conflict. God served as the rear guard protecting the people from imminent harm. God made a way out of no way for the people to move toward safety and removed the threat to the people's freedom. 
God led the people through the waters and into a new life on the other side. But the rest of the miracle depends upon the people's response. And what we find in the wilderness wandering stories that follow in the book of Exodus is that the people continue to grumble and complain about their conditions, talking about how they should have stayed in Egypt and never been set free. They're forgetful. They who've been treated with brutality and slavery invade other lands and do violence to the people there. And then they tell the story that it was God's will that they should conquer and plunder and destroy. They are fickle, creating a golden calf that's probably a representation of the Egyptian bull god Apis, the place from which they'd come, or the Canaanite fertility god Baal in the place that they were. And let's not get it twisted and think that this story is about someone other than us. I'm not talking about them whoever they are, I'm talking about us. Because here's the thing. God brings us through trials and tribulations again and again. God puts up with our, now I'm not saying any of you do this, I'm using the, the proper we, the broad we here. God puts up with our complaining and forgetfulness. God guides and guards us. God sends prophets and teachers and scientists and organizers and freedom fighters and poets and peacemakers to articulate ways that we are called to change and to become more aligned with God's kingdom vision. God sent Jesus, who led us into the waters of baptism, taught us through word and deed, was in solidarity with the suffering and sin of the world unto the point of death on a cross. And then baptized us with Holy Spirit to embody the ways of God that make for peace and not violence, deliverance and not destruction. You see, God has done God's part. And God never slumbers nor sleeps, but continues to help us steadfastly, lovingly, patiently, powerfully, leading ahead and guarding us from behind. New every morning is God's love, and all day long God is working for good in the world and in your life, in our lives. How are we responding each day to God's amazing grace and liberating power? Are we willing to bring the miracle of liberation and new life closer to completion through our attitudes and our actions? Our Jewish siblings are celebrating Rosh Hashanah this weekend, an observance that celebrates the Jewish New Year and ushers in 10 days of repentance that culminate in the major fast day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. 
During this time, our Jewish siblings ask for forgiveness for the mistakes made in the past year and for freedom and power to do better in the year ahead. Perhaps today's family story at the Sea of Reeds invites us to join our Jewish siblings in their observance, calling to mind the ways that we take for granted the good things in our lives and grumble about the challenging things, the ways we prefer familiarity to freedom, the ways we persist in doing violence to others, to earth, to ourselves, and then blame God for not fixing what we're not willing to do anything about. Perhaps we might call to mind how we turn to other gods, so quickly willing to turn to other gods, gods that seem shinier, that don't ask anything of us, or that give us immediate gratification, instead of remembering our God who has given everything so that we might live truly and fully. As we lean into the fall and a new season of ministries and mission, it is a good time to reflect, to call these things to mind and to pray for God's guidance and grace, to know where we are being led, to be guided into the place to which God calls us to participate in the miracle, to do better than we've done before. I love that the celebration of Rosh Hashanah, this joyful new beginning, a new year, in which they, the greeting is, have a sweet new year. It is sweet, and let me tell you why. Because our shared family miracle, the miracle of liberation and of new life, is predicated on God's compassion, on God's mercy and God's grace with us. We all get to begin again, not just every year or every season, but every single day because of God's grace and God's love and God's mercy. That is a cause for joy. That is sweet. By God's grace, from the Passover table to the Reed Sea to the wilderness, from the River Jordan to the Upper Room to the cross, God has liberated us from any fear or any fault that would keep us from living more fully and more freely, more intentionally and generously, more faithfully and bravely. God has done God's part. <laughs> And now it's our turn to move the miracle toward completion. A reality in which our lives, the human family, and our world become more gentle, more just, more liberated to love as God intends. May it be so. Amen.